So, good evening. Here we are, just about in the middle of our retreat. The rest is easy sailing for some of you. But now we've begun to expand the focus of our awareness. Some of us are now including thoughts and feelings. So we can now also begin to explore identity. One of the central concepts of the Buddha's teaching. We can begin to explore anatta or not self. And to uh, introduce this subject, I would like to read to you for a little passage that I wrote in an article for the journal Inquiring Mind. Recently, I heard someone on the radio explaining the new crime of identity theft, and I immediately thought, yes, rob me, please. Take my identity and leave the cash. (laughs) I can regard my entire Buddhist path as a matter of shifting identities, and it all started with me trying to run away from myself, the sentimental histrionic drama of me-ness. The Buddha says that the false conceit of I, or self, is the bane of our existence. And I was indeed relieved when I began to see through the various membranes of personal identity. But what really surprised and delighted me is what I saw on the other side. It turns out that I'm not who I thought I was. I'm much, much more than that. For the most part, we each live in our own story, and it's pretty much the only one we tell. And that's too bad. Because while each of us is lost in our private drama, we don't notice that we're taking part in grand epics and heroic, noble projects. For instance, even while reading email or shopping for socks, we continue to operate as breathing cells in the great body of life on Earth, part of a fascinating multi-billion year experiment in biology and consciousness. Of course, in your own story, you are always the star, but in the big story of life on Earth, you are just a bit player just a walk-on part. But that's the point. You can disappear into this grand perspective like walking into a Chinese landscape painting and getting swallowed up by the deep gorges of bamboo forest and eternal sky. You can move out of the personal into increasingly large circles of inclusion and identity until finally you can point in any direction and say, along with the great Indian mystics, I am that. Tatvam Asi. So the question of identity, central to many spiritual paths. The Hopi say you must ask three questions. Where did I come from? Where am I going? What am I? Socrates said, know thyself. Zen 
uh, Zen masters have some colorful ways of framing the question, who am I? They ask, like, who is it that's dragging this corpse around? <laughs> or who is it that goes in and out of these six sense doors? The Buddha said, happiness can only be found by eliminating the false conceit of I or self. True happiness. Unfortunately, we are all born with a case of mistaken identity, believing that we are in here and the world is out there. It's almost the definition of life itself, the, the idea of being separate and somehow uh, outside of the world. Even a single-celled being will have a little membrane that it will extend when there's food in the vicinity or retract when there's some kind of threat. It's almost the definition of life to have a self. The Buddha's genius was to see through the membranes of self and to realize that we co-arise with all things, that we are not the separate, isolated individual we always thought ourselves to be. The true value of a human being is determined primarily by the measure and the sense in which he has attained liberation from the self. Albert Einstein. Sounded like the Buddha, didn't it? <laughs> I think it's really interesting to realize that it didn't always feel this way to be somebody. That self itself has its own history. And it wasn't always quite as individualistic and as tight as it is now in our, in our culture. If you would have uh, approached, say, a medieval peasant or a desert nomad a few hundred years ago or even more recently and said, well, what do you want to do with your life? They wouldn't know what you were talking about. You're born into a, a family, a caste, a tribe. Uh, you do what you're supposed to do according to, you know, your birth and the caste and various other circumstances. But there is no sense of personal autonomy. Um, Rollo May, famous psychologist from the last century, said, Americans cling to the myth of individualism as though it were the only normal way to live, unaware that it was unknown in the Middle Ages and would have been considered psychotic in classical Greece. <laughs> There's been research on early Greek literature uh, revealing that it seems the, the early Greeks thought that all the voices in their heads were the voices of the gods, which we would now, of course, label as schizophrenic. But now we all believe that all the voices in our heads are ours, which is its own uh, <laughs> skewed <laughs> understanding. The caveat that life, all life has a, seems to have a sense of self uh, may be true, but here we seem to have gone to a, a real difficult extreme 
here in the land of personalized license plates, you know. We really, it really feels like we've lost what uh, the anthropologists used to call the participation mystique, a sense of being part of a, of a tribe or a part of nature or part of the cosmos in some way interconnected with all things. It feels like the message in our culture is you're on your own. You make it or break it all on your own. Nobody even says God willing anymore, you know. And it's a setup. It's a setup for failure, right? You can't win. You can't win. So who are you? The Buddha gave us a path to explore that question for ourselves. That's the path we're on. He said, develop mindfulness this quality of, of objective observing of yourself as the subject, which is really one of the hardest things to imagine or uh, invite anyone to do. It's sort of like mindfulness is actually science, the scientific method. It's stepping out of the flow of phenomena and simply observing, simply kind of taking notes, you know, uh, I like to think of mindfulness and, and our meditation practice uh, as being a naturalist, becoming a naturalist and going into the wilderness of self to see what's going on. And you just uh, observe, you know, there's the thought of your mother, there's some bear scat, there's, uh, <laughs> there's your desire for ice cream, being as objective as possible about yourself as the subject. I like to think of mindfulness as uh, the opposable thumb of consciousness. Able to reach out and take a hold of reality in a completely different way. And sometimes I think that we are part of an evolutionary leap, beginning to understand how we are bound by the past, by instincts, uh, and uh, how we might free ourselves. I googled mindfulness the other day. There were 50 million references. We started a revolution. I, I had a fantasy that scientists would discover how to tweak our genes in some way. And we would all be born, all, all people would be born mindful. You know, from the get-go, why not? And uh, they'd look back at us as we now look back at the great apes and kind of, you know, patronizingly and say, oh, they had to squeeze their legs into awkward positions and just to get a, a glimpse, a little taste of this. So we develop mindfulness, and then we go and begin to explore the breath, the body, thoughts, emotions. And as we explore, we really begin to question our identity, who we are. 
Zen Master Dogen says, to study the Dharma, to study the Dharma is to study the self. To study the self is to know the self. To know the self is to forget the self. And to forget the self is to be enlightened by all the myriad things of the world. I, I like to joke that all the Buddha's teachings can be summed up in a knock-knock joke. So the disciples come to the master and they say, and the master answers with the number one spiritual question. Who's there? And if you don't get the joke, you have to be reborn over and over again <laughs> until you do get it. The, the Buddha keeps giving these instructions to go and, and really question. Who owns this experience? He says, explore. What is its ancestry? What is its origin? What is its cause? <coughs> to some extent, this kind of uh, questioning of our identity happens organically and uh, as a kind of side effect of practicing mindfulness. Um, I think my first meditation retreat was where it really, that shift of identity really started. And that was the shock of seeing that my mind is totally out of my control. You know, that, that you sit down and you're just, okay, just pay attention to your breath. And your mind continues to think and make plans and have fantasies without consulting you. You know, it just goes on and on. And you, didn't you always believe that you were in control, that there was a you up there doing all that? And then you tried, to, you tried to stop it, and it wouldn't stop. Like there's somebody else up there. <laughs> Never caught a glimpse of it, that being, but it's not you running the show. Uh, the same, similar thing kind of happened uh, to me. Regard, uh, questioning my identity started to happen a little bit with uh, my breath. At first, of course, I used my breath as a concentration object, a place to, you know, kind of anchor the mind. But over the years, um, it has become much more than that. Uh, first of all, I started to realize in meditating and, and focusing on my breath that I don't breathe, that breath breathes me, that uh, I'm, I'm really not... Uh, I don't have to pay attention to it. I can forget about it, and breath goes on. It's, it's, it's life inside of me. And in fact, if I try to stop breathing, if I hold my breath, I'll pass out, and breathing will continue. It's like life got inside, get in me and wants, wants me to continue. Um, I think Descartes should have said, I breathe, therefore I am. Because you can breathe without thinking, but you can't think without breathing. <laughs> and over the years, I really started to feel breath at the center of my existence. Um, breath helped me come down from the story of my life to the fact of my life, which is a, an identity I have that is much more inclusive and uh, easier to live with than the small me that's uh, 
that's there when I'm identified with my, say, my thinking mind. I become, when I'm in touch with my breath deeply, I become one of the live ones, uh, a condition I share with countless other beings, not just humans. And with a little reflection, you can realize yourself as part of the great breathing of the planet. With every breath, with this next breath, you are exchanging nutrients with the plant kingdom. With every breath, you become like a cell in the great breathing of the earth. You get uh, about 600 million breaths in a lifetime, average lifetime. Do you know what million you're working on? <laughs> Similar re revelations uh, arrived about my identity through mindfulness of the body. My first teacher was S.N. Goenka and he taught the body scan, and I'll never forget, uh, after practicing with him for a month or two and doing the body scan, and he's sitting up on, on the podium and chanting, Anicca, Anicca, and the body is, I, I couldn't feel any solidity almost anywhere. It had, it had dissolved, all solidity had dissolved, and there was a kind of a uh, beautiful sense of being really in touch with impermanence in a profound way. Uh, but I started to question, you know, do I own this body? I didn't choose to be in this body. I don't remember any catalog of choices being offered. You know, would you like eyes in the front and the back? <laughs> Would you like to swim, fly, or walk as your primary means of locomotion? Would you like your hunger and sex drive manually operated or <laughs> automatic? No choice. Just get a standard issue. What is this body made of? Where did it come from? Touch your knee or your knuckle and, or rub your upper and lower teeth together for just a moment and feel the hardness of bone. Your bones are made of calcium, phosphate, silicates, carbon, essentially the clay of earth. Where else could your body have come from? The clay of earth mysteriously molded into this skeletal shape. Most of our bodies are, I think 70% of our bodies are liquid, and most of that liquid has the chemical consistency of the oceans. I just uh, licked my upper lip and tasted the ocean. Or you can lick your wrist. And... We literally sweat and cry seawater. This body's not just on the earth, it's of the earth. 
we are earthlings. There's another part of our identity we hardly ever regard or, or consider. And we can start to feel it in meditation because we're bringing our attention down from the story to the fact of our lives. It's so obvious this body is not mine. The Buddha says an incredible thing. That he says, this body is not mine or anyone else's. It has arisen due to causes and conditions. For now it should be felt. I think the Buddha would have gotten along really well with Darwin. I think they would have agreed on a lot of things. The Buddha said, okay, this body is not mine or anyone else's. It's arisen due to causes and conditions. And then Darwin and, and the scientists came along and started to fill in some of the information about what those conditions were, what created this body. Uh, it's, pretty, it's a pretty interesting uh, list. First of all, The story of evolution is our collective autobiography, our collective biography. Each of us starts life as a single cell, the shape of an, e of an egg. Once the egg is fertilized, the DNA code guides it through the history of life on Earth. The single cell grows into a multi-celled sphere, into a tu tubular worm-like body. The embryo then grows rudimentary fins, gills, and webbed fingers and toes the features of reptiles and amphibians, as we cycle through the DNA of ancient ancestors. Even after we start to grow arms and legs, we resemble the embryos of pigs and rabbits. It all happens in the warm sea of the womb, and at birth we repeat the exodus from the ocean and land in the world. Richard Dawkins says, if you had a picture of your great-grandfather 150 million great-grandfathers ago, and we all have a great-grandfather that far back, of course, because otherwise we wouldn't be here, uh, a picture of your great-grandfather 150 million great-grandfathers ago, you would have a picture of a fish. <laughs> Some of your relatives were scaly <laughs> and could breathe underwater. I love hearing, I find these, it's so liberating to hear what caused what to grow. I mean, our current human form and feelings and the whole, all our nervous system, all of it is the result of nature demanding that this or that change be made, this or that adaption be made so that the species could survive or the various species could survive leading up to us. Um, one of my favorites is uh, something that was discovered by Dr. Paul McLean in the middle of the last century working at National Institute of Mental Health studying the evolution of the brain and discovering that we don't have a brain really we have three brains, and right now in your skull, uh, we have a fully functioning reptilian brain and a fully functioning mammalian brain, 
and the new neocortex or human brain. And there's growing evidence from serious scientific research that we use our new human brain mostly to make excuses for the behavior generated by the other two brains. <laughs> that we're not so much rational animals as we are rationalizing animals. <laughs> and you kind of start to feel that or, or understand that viscerally or in your own uh, being as you meditate and begin to see how consciousness kind of comes in maybe a little late from certain impulses inside of you, that uh, the rational part is not necessarily leading in the game of your life or the reality creation of your life. There are lots of uh, examples of that, of how, uh, for instance, there was no, there were no feet or legs on any uh, earthlings for the first two billion years of life on earth because there was no land. There was no necessity for legs and feet. That we are in this dance with nature. Nature's like the artist and uh, carving different life forms. And uh, here we are. Oh yeah, recent revelations about your body. You may have read some of this. It was really shocking to many people. 90% uh, of, of your body is made up of other living beings. Did you hear about that? Billions of them. Molecular biologists say there are at least 1,000 different species of life inside your large intestine alone. There are more living beings inside your mouth right now than all the humans that have ever lived on planet Earth. They have houses and roads and churches in there. <laughs> whole, whole civilization between your cheeks. <laughs> the, this article I read said, on every inch of your skin are millions of living beings. So I'm thinking, do I speak for them? Do they, uh, do they enjoy living with me? Do they wish I, I didn't shower so often? Uh, what if the alien cells in my body all got together and, you know, rebelled or something? The famous molecular biologist Lynn Margulis says, our concept of the individual is completely arbitrary. Each of us is a walking ecosystem. So, who are you? In your meditation practice, are you starting to see how much there is desire in the mind? How you uh, want pleasant things to occur and you want unpleasant things to go away and how persistent those desires are. You 
you start to get familiar with the basic instincts of life, seeking pleasure, avoiding pain. Noah talked about it last night. This is the way we're built. This is a given to take incarnation in this body. Way before Freud, uh, Buddha understood the sort of instincts. He called them underlying tendencies. This is neuroscientist Melvin Connor. The motivational portions of the brain have characteristics relevant to the apparent chronic nature of human dissatisfaction. Experiments suggest that our chronic internal state will be a vague mixture of anxiety and desire, best described by the phrase, I want, spoken with or without an object for the verb. You can see this in your own practice, you know, the, the continual desire, aversion, uh, pushing and pulling you around. You're sitting there, your leg starts to hurt, aversion. You start desiring the bell to ring, desire. Uh, the bell rings, a moment of satisfaction, a moment of contentment, and then, oh, there's a walking period. I really don't want to get... <laughs> oh, okay, maybe uh, I'll go to my room and look at my stuff for a while and then you wander <laughs> off. And you're, you're just continually, continually, the mind is full of, of desire and aversion and... Uh, the Buddha made that into the second noble truth, that that's the cause of our suffering is an untrained mind that just that keeps living under the fantasy that completing their next desire is what will bring lasting happiness or some kind of happiness, not realizing that it is the desire wheel itself that keeps us suffering. Uh, on some level, you have to though you have to bow to the brain that is uh, continually desiring and, and aversive. It's trying to take care of you. You know, it's what makes you take your hand off a hot stove, or uh, it makes you keep eating and procreating. Uh, but it comes with a price. Survival comes with a price. Incarnation comes with a price. And the mind has, of course, no shame at all. Uh, famous haiku poet Kobayashi Isa writes, I'm in Kyoto, yet I long for Kyoto, <laughs> O bird of time. You ever been someplace and find yourself desiring to be where you already are? If only there was one little thing different, you know, it would be perfect. So as we practice, we also begin to explore our mental and emotional life and see all of our biological and psychological conditioning pouring through. And with mindfulness, you can begin to see how moods arise and move through you without your bidding, you know, 
I find that quite often I'll be in a bad mood and realize that uh, I have low blood sugar. I haven't eaten for a while. And, you know, I'm all involved in this bad mood, and it has nothing to do with anything but the chemistry of my body. Uh, sometimes a remark, a memory will trigger a mood change. I'm not in charge of them. It's, it's so obvious. If I was in charge of my moods and emotions, I would be happy all the time, wouldn't I? It's so clear. It's not I, me, or mine. The Buddha says, Thus any feeling whatsoever, past, future, or present, internal or external, blatant or subtle, common or sublime, Far or near, every feeling is to be seen as it actually is with right understanding. This is not mine. This is not myself. This is not what I am. And his instructions on how to work with feelings are very simple, really unique. No moralizing, you know, uh, no judgment. Just be aware. He says, a meditator... A uh, yogi knows a lustful mind as lustful, a mind free from lust as free from lust, a hating mind as hating, a mind free from hate as free from hate. Becoming aware is the key, beginning to see uh, who owns these, these feelings, these emotions. There's a wonderful book called The Flight of the Garuda, which has some exercises that are used in some Tibetan schools for conjuring up the difficult emotional states, conjuring them up in order to learn, to become intimate with them and learn how to work with them and how to be okay with them. And uh, I'll read you a couple of the descriptions of how, how you do this. I'm not necessarily suggesting that you do it, but I'm just... Uh, I find it really interesting. Uh, okay, so at one time or another, all of you have been injured by others. Consciously recollect in detail how others have wrongfully accused you and victimized you, humiliating you, grinding you into the ground, and how you were shamed and mortified. Brood on these things, letting hatred arise. And as it arises, look directly at its essence, at hatred itself. Then discover, firstly, where the hatred comes from, secondly, where it is now, finally, where it goes to. And all you lovers, think of the beautiful man or woman in your, in your heart. You gluttons, consider the food you crave, meat, cake, or fruit. You strutting peacocks, recall and dwell on the clothes you like to wear. You avaricious traders, think about the form of wealth you desire, horses, jewelry, or cash. Anybody desiring horses? In? <laughs> Carefully consider these matters, allow desire to arise, and when it arises, look directly at its essence, at the greedy and lustful self. Deliberately calling these difficult emotions so that you, be able, you are able to come to terms with them and, and see them clearly and... Uh, and hold them in an accepting kind of mindfulness. So they don't have the ability anymore to kind of swallow you and uh, give you your identity, your false identity as a hateful person or a, you know, a 
greedy person. I think uh, the most profound shift in my meditation practice over the years has been in my relationship to my thinking mind. We're still friends. Uh, in fact, we live together, but uh, <laughs> we're no longer quite so codependent. I think I may have started a meditation practice because uh, I realized I had, in my mind, had a thinking problem. I was a heavy thinker. It would start thinking first thing in the morning and think through the afternoon. I had to have a couple thoughts before I went to bed. <laughs> I, need, I needed an intervention, you know. Uh, before meditation, I think I was completely identified with my thinking mind. You know, the, uh, I was a true believer. That's what our, our culture emphasizes. That's what we get graded on in school. Your ability to, uh, you know, manipulate the contents of your mind and come up with brilliant thoughts. And um, it's ironic that I think I spent, uh, I spent the first half of my life learning how to think, and the second half of my life trying to ignore my thinking. What was I thinking? I mean, it was. <laughs> but of course. Uh, I don't want to give the impression that thoughts are bad. Thoughts are wonderful. Thoughts, it, it, it's the, thinking is the genius of our species and uh, a great survival tool. A major misconception that people have about meditation is that it's a, a, a time to get rid of thoughts. That's not the case. We really just want to expose the mind to itself so that it has the understanding of of these thoughts that are, you know, coming up over and over again, perhaps. Or it, it starts to, we start to examine the process of thinking, not just the contents of thinking. And, and question, again, whose thoughts are these? Where did they come from? Um, thinking is our genius, and it allows us to share knowledge with each other, pass it, pass it on to uh, future generations, As a species, however, we have grown to believe that our thinking makes us superior to the rest of creation. This is Darwin from his secret notebooks. Why is thought, which is a secretion of the brain, well, you know, it was 150 years ago. Uh, why is thought, which is a secretion of the brain, deemed so much more wonderful than, say, gravity, which is a property of matter? It is only our arrogance, our admiration of ourselves, Stephen Jay Gould said, an, optimist, an octopus doesn't go around being proud of its eight arms. <laughs> the Buddha saw the thinking mind as a sixth sense, a way of reading, interp interpreting the world, not more grand than the other, than the other uh, senses. I think it's very, it can be very liberating to... Uh, view thinking as a biological function, as a, as a survival tool. Monitoring the world, adjusting our behavior, planning. If we, if we realize it as a survival tool, it helps to depersonalize and demystify it. I sometimes like to think, what were people 20, 30,000 years ago thinking? 
you know, probably something like who's going to watch the fire, uh, you know, who's going on the hunt tomorrow. Now we think about our 501k or our love life or the grocery list. It's basically the same stuff. Sometime in meditation, take a little uh, time, you know, a span of time. Count how many of your thoughts could somehow be related to survival. Including your place in the pecking order as, uh, you know, part of that. Pretty interesting. So the question of identity, where, you know, we start to think about where all this stuff comes from. And we start, as we're, as we're in our meditation, we start to raise the question of who owns this experience? Where, what is its ancestry? What is its origin? And we're not looking necessarily for an answer. I mean, I don't know if anybody who has an answer, you know, who am I? Really, I mean, I'm an earthling, I'm a, alive, uh, I'm, an, I'm a female, I'm a male. And there's so many, there's so many different uh, ways to think about it. And I imagine some of you are at this moment thinking, what about the self that lives, that runs the show? I mean... There is somebody here, isn't there, that's, that's doing all this, planning and uh, carrying out actions and eating. And a few years ago, I found a, a Time magazine cover story entitled In Search of the Mind. A lot of people may have uh, been a little shocked to, to see that the mind was lost. And then more shocked to realize that even the scientists couldn't find it. Uh, the, the article concludes, and I wrote down this paragraph because it's just so good. Uh, Despite our every instinct to the contrary, consciousness is not some entity inside the brain that corresponds to self, some kernel of awareness that runs the show. After more than a century of looking for it, brain researchers have concluded that such a self simply does not exist. These are scientists. This is Time magazine. Why wasn't there a national panic of some kind? <laughs> the self is no, Nobody can find the self. It turns out our brain is sort of a self-organizing system and really doesn't need a leader. You know, it's so beautifully designed by evolutionary forces. Daniel Dennett, a famous neuroscientist, quote, you enter the brain through the eye, march up the optic nerve, round and round the cortex, looking behind every neuron, and then before you know it, you emerge into daylight on the spike of a motor nerve impulse, scratching your head and wondering where the self is. So in meditation, we're beginning to look and explore this this uh, one of the three characteristics of existence, anatta, not-self. And we're starting, hopefully, to get uh, sort of comfortable with the fact that it all kind of runs, it all goes on within you and without you, you know? It's, uh, it's all flowing through you. 
and you can begin to maybe feel a little bit of the freedom from that isolating individualism, that living only in your own drama, forgetting that you are part of this collective. I, I like to think that we're all doing this together. This is a, a, a species on, on the verge of gaining a whole new understanding of how, who we are in the universe. My, I have two mantras. One is, you're perfectly human. Humans aren't perfect, but you're perfectly human. In fact, humans can be forgiven, actually, for everything. You know, there were 100 million generations of dinosaurs and millions of generations of mammals before humans came along. There have been 20,000, 30,000 generations of modern Homo sapiens. We just got these big brains. We don't know how to use them real well yet. We're just starting to learn, which is what we're doing here. Humans should not be tried as adults, you know. It's a, we're, we're, we're a baby species. We're a baby species. And it's exciting to be part of, of this collective awakening. Thich Nhat Hanh says, the next Buddha will be a Sangha. That's all of us. Let me close with a poem. Noah loves it when I read poetry. <clears throat> and especially when I read Mary Oliver. <laughs> it is the nature of stone to be satisfied. It is the nature of water to want to be somewhere else. Everywhere we look, the guttural swill of the water tumbling. Everywhere we look, the stone basking in the sun or offering itself to the golden lichen. It is our nature not only to see that the world is beautiful, but to stand in the dark under the stars or at noon in the rainfall of light, frenzied, wringing our hands, half mad, saying over and over, what does it mean that the world is beautiful? What does it mean that the world is the child asks this, the determined laboring adult asks this, both the rich and poor ask this, and the old and very old, not yet having figured it out, ask this. Standing beside the golden-coated field rock or the tumbling water or under the stars, what does it mean? What does it mean? Let's sit for a minute.
Thank you for your kind attention. We have a walking period. Bipeds. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.